Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. You guys grab a seat. We're going to get into the Word this morning. We're going to jump straight in. Laughed. I was telling my boys this morning or this weekend that I had way too much to to say. And Luke said, "Well, give me your notes, and I'll throw away half the pages, and we'll just call it good." And I don't know that that's the approach we want to take here today. But we got some good stuff and a lot of ground to cover. So turn with me to Second Samuel thirteen. And as you do that, I want to just say one of the most confusing aspects I think of the spiritual life for us as Christians is the relationship between grace and forgiveness of our sin and the consequences of our sin. Sometimes we think because grace is so present and because forgiveness is so ever ready uh, at the hands of the Father that, uh, that everything ought to just go away. And then we find ourselves kind of reeling under the consequences of some of the decisions we've made. And it can feel a little bit confusing as, as we think about that. But it makes a lot of sense if you, uh, if you kind of step back and just process this for a minute. How many of you have heard the story about um, my, the one punch I've thrown in my life? Uh, some of you probably heard this story before, but uh, my brother and I, uh, I'm sure your kids are not like this, but my brother and I used to wrestle around a little bit, fight a little bit and argue a little bit. And as we were growing up, that was a little more permitted in my childhood than it is today. Uh, and so, you know, parents were like, hey, you know, just try to make sure everyone walks away at the end and it's okay. Now, uh, but we used to get into it. One day we were playing football and began to wrestle around a little bit. And I decided that I was gonna throw a punch, the, the first punch I'd ever really thrown. And so my hard-headed brother, Clint, uh, was there in front of that fist as it was coming and uh, cracked that bone right there. Uh, the only punch I ever threw was at a hard-headed little brother and uh, I had suffered the consequences of that action. And here's the deal. Um, Clint and I fought occasionally, but we were really good friends. We made up really quickly. And as soon as we got in a fight, we'd get out of a fight and move on throughout our day and, and, and kind of enjoy life together. And so we said, we're sorry. He said, okay. We moved on through the day, but I still had a cast on my hand. So even though forgiveness can come quickly, consequences sometimes last. And that meant no sports for the summer. That meant uh, no swimming pool for the summer. That meant lots of things that I wanted to do that summer I didn't get to do. And it wasn't because we couldn't have fixed things or made things right between us, but it was because there were consequences to the decisions I made and to the sin that I had done. And so friends, forgiveness may happen quickly, but consequences oftentimes linger on and give us pain. And this is what we're going to look at in the rest of 2 Samuel. So as we think about the, the life of David and this trajectory, early on in David's life, it seems like he can do no wrong and everything seems to go up and to the right. It seems like, man, this guy is perfect. God calls him a man after God's own heart. And everything seems to be moving in the right direction. And then you get to 2 Samuel chapter 11 and his affair with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah. And then you get to 2 Samuel chapter 12 and Nathan comes in and confronts David and challenges him on his sin and things begin to look a little different. Now in that, David repents and God gives grace 
to David. But what we're going to see is that the consequences of David's sin continue to unravel in his life and in his family and in his nation in the days ahead. Look with me at 2 Samuel. Uh, we're going to actually start in, ver- in ch- uh, chapter 12. Look at what Nathan says to David. Chapter 12, verse 11. This is after all this has happened. Bathsheba, he'd had the, uh, David had the affair with Bathsheba. He'd actually killed Uriah. Uh, he'd come out of that and uh, brought Bathsheba in. And, and um, Nathan begins to confront him about his sin. And this is what he has to say in verse 11. It says, thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun, meaning what you did in private, I'm going to bring out into the open and I will make it known. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. That's grace, that's forgiveness. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because of this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. And so David went on and has to deal with the consequences of his sin as they begin to unfold, the first with the loss of this child. Now friends, here's the thing. David repented sincerely and God gave grace sincerely and there was forgiveness and there was right relationship that was reestablished there, but there are still consequences. They're going to haunt and linger David. And the, the book of 2 Samuel, really from this point on, from, from that chapter of, of 2 Samuel 12 on, is going to just fulfill this prophecy that Nathan gave. He says, look, there's gonna be turmoil in your house. There's gonna be things that happen out in the open that expose you. And the reason is David as the king was the representative of God in front of the people. And so God gave promises to Abraham in the Old Testament and those promises uh, come through. And then there's promises in, uh, that God gave to Moses in the Mosaic covenant. And in that there's blessings and curses that are gonna come based on the obedience of the people. And then when the Davidic covenant comes in 2 Samuel 7, that focuses on the king, David. And so all those promises and all that becomes focused on the king as the representative of God's people. And God says, you're the one that represents me to my people and my people represent me to the world. And David, what you've done in private was scornful to me. It was disrespectful to me. And so there's going to be a consequence to that. In the last 20 years of David's 40-year reign, remember he had seven-year reign that he he led over half the kingdom and then the whole kingdom comes underneath his reign and he leads him into Jerusalem. He brings the ark into Jerusalem, sets up and said, God's gonna be the center of the nation and things are going so well until you get to this point. But from the point of David and Bathsheba and from the, the promise or the prophecy of Nathan about the consequences that are gonna follow David, I mean, everything's a struggle from that point on. So that the last 20 years of the 40-year reign of David are really gonna be marked by the train wreck of his family. It's gonna include incest, rape, murder, arson, polygamy, uh, the death of three of his sons, insurrection and coups by his own people. And things just begin to unravel. And here's what we need to see today. God forgives all sin, but he does not remove the consequences of all sin. God will forgive all sin, but he doesn't remove all consequences of our sin. Sometimes they linger. So let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 13. And we're gonna roll through some of this section today. And today I wanna, rather than just reading straight through the story, I actually wanna just take it verse by verse and kind of unpack it. So you kind of get one scene of the movie and the next scene and the next scene and kind of get pulled into this traumatic and honestly terrible 
scene that we're about to see. So 2 Samuel 13, verse one, says, now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. So two of David's sons, now these are, uh, these are two sons from different women. David had multiple wives and that's one of, those one of those sins that's gonna have consequences that's going to affect him. And so you've got this half brother, half sister. So you've got Absalom, who we're gonna find out later is a really good looking dude. And he's got a beautiful sister named Tamar. And then you've got another son, Amnon. Amnon is first in line for the throne. So if anything were to happen to David, Amnon appears to be the one that's in line to become king next. And so Amnon begins to fall in love with his half-sister, Tamar, who's beautiful. Now I say falls in love with because that's what the text says. But what we're gonna see is there's nothing that shows up in his life that looks anything like love of his sister. But you can't really say he falls in lust with his sister. So it says he falls in love but there's, we're gonna see that there's all kinds of problems with this. The bottom line is that he wants his half-sister. He, he wants to know her sexually. He wants to pleasure himself with her. In fact, you see an awful line that comes after this is, Amnon was so tormented that he made himself sick because of his sister, Tamar. For she was a virgin and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. I mean, it's a vile statement, isn't it? says she was a virgin, meaning she was ripe for marriage. She was of the right age. That She was, uh, she was prime for, for, being, for being married and beginning a family and beginning this life. And in that, he begins to look at her and he begins to lust after her. And it's clear to her, clear that he says that when you read the offline, it says it seemed impossible for him to what? To do anything to her. See, she was a tool for him to pleasure is the way he was approaching it. And it's a clue as to what we're talking about. This isn't love, this is lust. Now, it was forbidden in the Old Testament law. And so uh, a half-brother could not marry a half-sister. So this was a forbidden act. And you never notice in life that there's something enticing about forbidden acts. There's something that's stimulating about getting away with something that's been forbidden. When you've been told don't cross that line to a little kid, what's the first thing that kid wants to do? You just like, like starts tapping his foot over, then eventually he's gonna step over, right? Because we feel like rules were made to be broken. And that's what you begin to see here with Amnon is he wants something that he cannot have because the Bible says you cannot have her. Then you notice that as he's wrestling with this, it says, well, it seems impossible. Uh, then a friend shows up and there's always a friend, isn't there? In moments like this, uh, in verse three, it says, but Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemiah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, oh, son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? After morning? Will you not tell me? And Amnon said, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. So in this, you notice it says that Jonadab's very crafty. He talks about crafty. He's talking about someone who's not wise spiritually, but someone who's streetwise. Someone who knows how to get things done. Someone who knows how to work in the way of the world and get around the rules and find ways through to, to get that which you want accomplished. And so this is kind of a street smart dude. And he comes up with a plan. Now, teenagers, can I tell you, and really this belongs to all of us, but teenagers, can I tell you, you know, watch out for the friend whose special skill is helping you get what you want, but God's told you you cannot have. That is not a true friend. In fact, can I give you a side note here? 
Every predator has an enabler. And what we see right here is that Amnon is a predator and he's stalking this young lady and Jonadab is gonna be his enabler. He's gonna be the one that makes it happen. And you notice Jonadab doesn't tell her to sleep with her. He doesn't tell Amnon, you should sleep with your sister. He doesn't tell Amnon to rape her. He's got a little bit of distance there where he can go, well, I didn't know that was gonna happen. But he orchestrates behind the scenes everything in order to enable the situation to come to fruition. He's the enabler for this predator. And what he does is evil because those circumstances are gonna lead to the sexual assault of Tamar. Notice what what Jonadab calls Amnon. He says, oh, son of the king. What he's saying is, Amnon, dude, you're royalty. You're big, you're big time. You're an important dude. You're, you're in line for the throne. You, you should have whatever you want. I mean, if you're, if you're that big time, you should, be able to, you should be able to name whatever it is that you desire and it should come your way. So what's bothering you, O king? So they come up with this plan to manipulate King David. And uh, sadly, it appears as though Jonadab knows that if he goes to David, David's gonna give him whatever he wants. It's kind of a permissive, distant or absent father. And so they come up with a plan to manipulate. David says, go to your daddy and ask him to send Tamar, your favorite sister, in to fix you some chicken noodle soup because you're so sick. And so poor little Amnon, you're sick and you're not feeling well and you need some comfort food. And so go and and ask your daddy to send your sister in to, to cook a special meal, your favorite meal for you. And so that's the scenario that happens and it begins to take place. In the next few verses, that's what unravels. And so Tamar innocently comes to serve her brother. And as she shows up there in that room to serve him, um, he eventually smells the the food and it says that he he watches as she prepares it all. But then that's not enough for him. He says, send everyone out. I'd like Tamar to come feed me one-on-one, just her and just me. And so he closes the scene a little more and she begins to feed him. It's such an insidious scene, isn't it? You're meant to feel the trauma unfolding the way it's written. You're meant to feel the the weight and the pressure of it. And Amnon is stronger, so he seizes her hands and he says to her, lie with me, as though it's an invitation, but it's not really a choice because he's holding her against her will. And the whole scene's horrific. That's interesting as you watch what she does, but she's She's going to beg him not to do this. She says no. She's gonna, she's gonna make an argument. I want you to see the argument that she makes down in verse 12. She answered him and said, no, my brother, do not violate me for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. And do you, do you feel the desperation in her voice? You know, she says, do not do this outrageous thing. She says outrageous. It's a term that means morally disgraceful, morally reprehensible, morally foolish, a godless act. It's the same idea that we see in Psalm 14 when it says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Meaning the, the godless, atheistic, pagan people who reject the Lord are are foolish and outrageous in the rebellion against the Lord. And she says, Amnon, if you do this thing, you're acting like them. You're you're playing the fool. And do not, you know, she makes a three-part argument. 
That's the first thing she says is, do not do this outrageous thing for God's sake. She says, Amnon, this kind of thing is not done in Israel. It's not done in God's people. Amnon, we don't do this. We don't act this way. If the rest of the world wants to run down this crazy path, we stand our ground and we do not act this way. This is not done in God's people. So for God's sake, don't do this idiotic thing. And then she says, for my sake, don't do this outrageous thing. So where would I go with my shame? Where would I find healing from this? And then she says, for your own sake. So Amnon, if you do this thing, you'll be like a hated fool in the kingdom who's unfit to rule. Don't do this outrageous thing for God's sake, for my sake, for your sake. And then she goes on and she kind of throws out this last thing and you can tell she's, she just knows there's a ticking time bomb about to go off. And she's, she's just trying to stall and buy some time. And she says, hey, let's, just, let's, go, let's go visit David. Let's talk to him about it. Sure, maybe he'll let you marry me. And I, I don't think she, at this point, thinking that would really happen or that he would ever allow that. She's just saying, what can I do to buy a few minutes to get out of this moment, to escape this situation? Um, it's devastating to see what she does. In verse 14, it says, but he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. See, when she resisted, he resorts to force. That's what we call sexual assault or rape. It's a false use of power. It's a false use of authority. It's a false use of manhood. It's a false use of strength. It's a false use of privilege. And yet in some ways he's acting and he's following in the footsteps of his father, right? See, David had looked out on Bathsheba and said, go get that woman and bring her to me. And he lied with her. And yet what we see here is even more vile. Verse 15, you see a terrifying statement. It says, then Amnon hated her with a great hatred so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had previously loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the wrong that you did to me. But he would not listen to her again. And he called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So the servant put her out and bolted the door and Tamar put ashes on her head and tore her long robe that she wore and she laid her laid her head, hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. And it's a horrible, horrible scene. You notice what it says. He hated her with an intense hatred. And so much for the love that he claimed to have. Now everything's flipped and he's gone a totally different direction. Do you notice what this says about the nature of sin? See, sin in our lives twists something that is a potential good and turns it into something bad. Sin takes that which is beautiful and that which God has designed and it distorts it and it turns it into something to be used for evil. And this is really the pattern of lust that you see unfolding here. The pattern of lust is the pleasure is to be enjoyed for the pleasure's sake. And after that, the person is to be discarded. See, that's what lust does. Lust says that, lust says that you are here for my pleasure and once I've enjoyed this moment, then you can be discarded as an object. Notice what, it, what he says about her. He says, 
take this woman out. He won't call her by name anymore. It's demeaning, it's degrading, and it's impersonal. And he will no longer do that. But see, love is different than lust. The pattern of love says the person is enjoyed for the person's sake. And then when you add pleasure to that, it remains. It's very different from the pattern of lust. As strongly as Amnon felt that he had to have her, now he feels even more strongly that he wants nothing to do with her. It's sinful, evil stuff. He says, I wanna pleasure myself, but then I don't wanna deal with any of the responsibility on the backside. I wanna enjoy this moment, but I don't wanna be accountable. I don't wanna be responsible. I don't wanna be helpful on the backside. And so he sends her out and says, not only that, he says, send her out and what? Bolt the door. Click. I want nothing to do with her anymore. Verse 22 to 20, or 20, it says, So Tamar lived, a desolate woman, in her brother's, brother Absalom's house. And when King David heard of these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad. But Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. The phrase where it says a desolate woman means devastated. Her trauma was real and her shame was real. Sadly, is Tamar's never spoken of again in the Bible. This is the last we hear of this woman, his little half-sister that Amnon took advantage of. And Absalom hates Amnon for what he did. Friends, this is one of the most heinous passages in the Bible. And it's funny when I come to preach this, part of me wanted to make excuses or like warn you. Or, but the reality is this isn't just one of the most heinous passages of the Bible. This stuff happens in life. This stuff happens in, um, in the world in which we live and you can't go very far without reading the news to know that this kind of thing continues even today. It's in the headlines all around us far too frequently and far too frequently from the people of God. In fact, statistics say that one out of four of you ladies have endured something like this. One out of four in this room that's horrifying for me. And the stats say that men, young men, that are, are increasing and catching up at a rapid pace. This is a horrific blotch on humanity. And it's devastating to acknowledge this reality, but I want you to know that we care. I want you to know that it's not okay. I want you to know that as I read about Tamar, as I look at this, that she did nothing wrong here that she was assaulted and sinned against in this passage. And I think that's important to, to say out loud. And for those of you that all know this all too well, I just wanna say, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for what you've endured and what you continue to endure. Friends, this outrageous thing should never happen amongst God's people. Tamar was right. This should never happen among the brothers and sisters of the Lord. And yet it happens far too frequently. So I wanna make a statement. I can't promise you that a predator will never come to our church. I have no ability to see that in advance. I have no ability to weed that out at the door. And it horrifies me to think about that being the case. But here's what I want you to know. We will not tolerate predators in our pews and we will not tolerate enablers in our leadership. And I want you to hear that from me. 
And we will fight to keep our sisters safe in this family. And we'll do whatever we can to protect. Our elders know this, and I want you to know this. If you ever need our help, you can come to us and we'll listen. And we'll do what we can to intervene. Because the Tamars of this world are beautiful daughters of, of God. And they deserve to be valued and cared for. So heavy stuff. But I think if you look at our world, it's important for us to say that and to say it out loud and to say it strongly. And I, I want you guys to hear that from us. So back in 2 Samuel, can we talk about what's happening here? Friends, David cracked the door. His family's pushing it open. And so what you begin to see is that sin uh, begins to get a foothold and it begins and it just starts taking more and more ground. One man said what the father has sown was harvested by the children. And Absalom watches in horror as his father David does nothing. You know, we saw that David was angry, but David doesn't intervene, he doesn't engage. He doesn't seem to do anything about this. And in a sense, Absalom's forced to take matters into his own hand. Someone has to take action. And he has rightful compassion for his sister. He goes to her and says, says Tamar, you, are, you can stay in my house. I will take care of you. I will provide for you. There is a home for you here. You can be at peace here, even in the midst of this. Do not sweat the fact of what he did. And he's not minimizing it, but he's saying, you had no wrong in the matter. And so he's inviting her in and saying, I will take care of her. There's an appropriate response for him to have compassion that comforts, cares, provides, and promises to watch over her. Later, it's interesting, uh, Absalom, it says, has another daughter, has a daughter of his own, who's a beautiful daughter, and he names her Tamar, after his sister. He names his daughter after this one. But frankly, what Absalom's doing is what David should have done. And Absalom does a lot of good here, but he's also gonna do a lot of bad. And so as much as, he, as what he's done is right and the roots of it, I think, are, are, are well intended, the seed of bitterness that, that's being sown in his family in Absalom's heart's going to grow and it's gonna fester and it's gonna spread. And he's gonna eventually give full vent to the anger that he has over this situation. And it's going to continue to unravel this family. Can I say this? We talk a lot about the problem with young dudes who have authority issues. But in my experience, most young guys with authority issues can point back to an event of a father wound or a wound of a, of a, a leader who should have been trusted in their life who failed them. And they look back and say, because of that event, that something took, took root in their heart and it began to expand and to grow. And if it's not dealt with at that point, it's going to become problematic. But most guys with authority issues have a legitimate issue in the past that, and that began that process for them. So friends, we're gonna have to move pretty quickly as we look through the next um, section here and see how this plays out in David's family. So the day that Tamar comes home from this assault, uh, she interacts with Absalom and Absalom takes care of her. Absalom at that point vows that he's going to get vengeance. But man, this guy is sneaky smart. This guy is, he's, he's one of the guys who's super patient. He's going to wait. And it says, he did not say a single thing negative or positive about Amnon. He just said, I'm going to wall it off. And he's waiting for the day. And two years go by as he's plotted and prepared and planned for a way to execute this vengeance. You know the saying that says, revenge is a dish best served cold? Man, Absalom understood that. 
And so he's waited his time and he crafts a plan. And so as you get to the end of chapter 13, what you see is verse 23. Uh, it says that after two full years, Absalom had the sheep shearers at Baal Azor, which is at Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons. So sheep shearing time was the party time in, in a shepherding culture. And so as they worked and as they worked as shepherds, the time when they got to shear the sheep meant that's when they got to sell the wool, which means they got a lot of money, which usually meant that time coincided with let's throw a giant party. And everyone who's worked all year long to get us to this point gets to come to the party and celebrate. And so Absalom says, goes to David and says, hey, David, why don't you let all my brothers come and party with us? Why don't you come too? And David says, and we don't want to be a burden to you, meaning, and that would get expensive because I got a lot of wives, a lot of kids, a lot of stuff. This is just be too much financial burden on you. So uh, why don't you just enjoy your party by yourself? Well, in that, um, Absalom's going to say, no, well, why don't you just send Amnon? And David is a little puzzled and says, well, why would I just send Amnon? But he eventually says, in verse 27, Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's son go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. And when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom commanded. And so he executes his half-brother. In that, um, what you see is then Absalom flees and he runs off uh, to a place called Geshur. And in that, um, it says that David, um, it says the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. Meaning that David had been angry when it happened to Tamar. But now that it's come to this point, he's relieved that Amnon's dead and it's gone away. But now Absalom's living in a foreign country in exile and David's heart's longing to reconnect with Absalom. But still he's inactive, still he's passive, still he's not doing anything to move towards him. I mean, do you see the, the way that the consequences of David's sin is just unfolding and how it's continuing to unravel this family and this man? So chapter 14, uh, or chapter 13, we see is the king's broken family leads to the king's broken heart. He's in a bad place and he's, he's wrestling. In chapter 14, I'm just gonna summarize kind of what happens there. It describes Absalom's exile, that he's away in Geshur. Now, Absalom was unique in that his, uh, he, he was, had kind of royal blood on both sides of his family tree. He had David on one side, his mom was the daughter of, king, of the king of, uh, of Geshur. And so the Geshurites were royalty. And so he, he had royalty on that side. And so when he goes to Geshur, he's not just finding a convenient place to hide. He's going back to another place where his ambition might be unleashed and he might eventually become king. And so if I won't be king in Geshur, then I'll be king in Israel, but I'm gonna be king somewhere in one place or the other. And so um, Asher, uh, so Absalom goes and lives there and he lives there for three long years. Finally, Joab sees the toll this is taking on David and Joab goes to David. And he actually works this kind of, convoluted plan and eventually is able to intervene and bring Absalom home. And so David allows Absalom to come home. But at the end of, verse, or end of chapter 14, verse 24, notice what it says. The king said, let Absalom dwell apart in his own house. He's not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the presence of the king. I mean, can you imagine the three years away and he allows Absalom to finally come home but then he puts him in house arrest somewhere else and says, but I don't want anything to do with him. 
And so you've got this kind of difficulty. Now, I think the million dollar question for most of us as we read through this is where's David? Where's the David we know? Where's the man after God's own heart? We read that David's angry about what happened to Tamar. We leave, he's relieved when Abdon's removed. We read that he longed to go out to Absalom. And yet, as things are unraveling, David just seems paralyzed. What keeps David from doing these things? Well, you could speculate in some ways. Maybe he's living without limits and he's so distracted by important stuff that he misses out on the essential stuff. Uh, maybe he's just busy uh, about the, the kingdom and he's self-absorbed in all the tasks at hand. Maybe, maybe he's uh, paying more attention to ESPN, Twitter, and Wall Street than he is Bobby, Betty, and Benny in his own house. Uh, maybe the, the, there's some self-pity of licking old wounds from his past. Can I tell you though what I think is really going on here? I think what's happening here is that David's dealing with his own shame and guilt. And he's saying, man, my sin got us in this mess. What right do I have to speak into anyone else's life? See, David's sin undermined his authority as a father, as a leader, and as a king. His sin undercut his authority and his ability to speak boldly into situations of others. And I think it caused, it made him lose his confidence at home. Remember what we said about the consequence of sin? Sin is the punishment of sin. The, the, the punishment for sin is that God just allows more sin to, to roll in our lives. Who sends Tamar to Amnon, incidentally? David. Who sends Amnon to Absalom before he's killed? David. He has a hand in all, every step of this along the way. And what we're seeing is that sin has a ripple effect. It's moving from his family to his nation and Absalom is about to make a play for David's throne. And so as this begins to unravel, what you see is that Absalom wants to force the issue and he's tired of being locked out and isolated in this house out here. And so he reaches out to Joab and says, hey, Joab, you're the one that managed to get me home to start with. Maybe you can work some peace out with my dad and get me back in, into the inner circle. And Joab ignores him. So what's Absalom do? He does the most reasonable, logical thing, which is he lights Joab's farm on fire. Uh, he commits arson. And so Joab runs out when his house is on fire and goes, dude, what is going on? Why did you light my stone on fire? He goes, well, you didn't listen to me. I told, you, uh, I told you that I wanted some attention. Um, and he's doing what childish people do. He's acting out, trying to get attention. And of course, in a dysfunctional family, it works, right? And so Joab runs out and then Joab comes back to David and says, look, David, you've got to do something. And, and, and um, Absalom pushes it and he says, look, if I'm guilty, then kill me. But otherwise, pardon me and let me go on about my life. But I'm tired of being stuck in limbo land out here. You see this ambition, this leader, this drive. He said, you're not gonna ignore me any longer. I will be heard one way or another. And so Absalom begins to work for that. Eventually, um, David allows him to come back, brings him back to, uh, to the house and it says that they celebrate a ceremonial kiss in the house and say, in order to say that we're at peace. Now, let me ask you this. After everything that you've heard about in this story, as you think about everything that's transpired, do you think a single moment of a ceremonial uh, symbol that says we're at peace is going to restore the relationship between David and Absalom? I mean, how many of you think they're gonna be on good terms going forward? No, not at all. See, you don't, you don't, ignore, uh, you, you don't ignore years of conflict 
Um, and, and like most dysfunctional families, they never addressed all the years of devastating actions and things that have happened. They ignore the, the, the sexual assault of the sister. They ignore the, the murder of the brother. They ignore the lost years of hiding, the years of isolation. Uh, they, they never talk about any of it. Can I give you a, a statement, friends, that you can count on? Deep wounds never heal on their own. See, bullets and bodies never extract themselves. Someone has to go do the deep work to see healing take place in those spaces. And as painful as it may, may be, deep wounds always have to be addressed. Someone has to lean into the tension and say, hey, let's talk about what's happened here so that you can move through that to a better place. But David doesn't do that, so things continue to get worse. In chapter 15, Absalom begins to plot a rebellion. And in that uh, you see that he's again strategic and patient in his planning. And you see the pride and ambition of young leaders. And, and there's so much I would want, I want to unpack here and I want to describe to you and explain to you because it's just so much rich stuff. But for the sake of time, I'm going to run really quickly through this. Absalom certainly looked the part of the king. You notice in 14, if you go back, it says, in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut his, the hair of his head, at the end of every year, he used to cut it. And when it was heavy on him, he would remove it. And he would weigh the, they would weigh the hair of his head, 200 shekels by the king's weight. They were born to Absalom, three sons, one daughter whose name was Tamar. And she was a beautiful woman. And he certainly looks the part of royalty, doesn't he? And he's without blemish. I mean, that's some next level vanity to cut your hair once a year and, and weigh it to see how thick your hair was. Uh, but this is the kind of guy he was. When they took a family picture, it was like a, a, a photo shoot of a set of models. Um, it says that he was physically impressive. Who does that remind you of if you think back to the life of David? That's King Saul. King Saul was physically impressive. But as he continued to interact, what we saw was that he was spiritually flawed. And Absalom is gonna be a lot more like a King Saul than a young King David. Remember what God said back in 1 Samuel? The Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as the man sees, but man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. See, Absalom had the outward appearance, but he was failing to cultivate a spiritual reality in the character of a leader that would be needed. Now, before he has anything to lead, he goes ahead and put starts building his platform, starts posing as a leader. You know, see, it says in, in chapter 15 that he gets a, a group of chariots and has 50 soldiers that run out ahead of him. So as he wanders through Jerusalem, um, he's riding in a chariot. Chariots were not something Israelites did. So this is like a new thing for him. And he's probably got a new Tesla model and he's got his chariot. He's got 50 soldiers. And anytime they wanna go through the streets, the soldiers are clearing the way. It's like parting the Red Sea and he's gonna go through. And so he's got this giant entourage. It's interesting that he has the appearance of a warrior for a guy who's never been in a battle. Isn't that interesting? Like, look at me, I'm this mighty warrior riding on my chariot. I've never stuck a sword in someone. I've never ordered my men to go shed their own blood on a field. I've never gone home to a mother or father and carried a body to them to say, I'm sorry that your son, or, that your son has passed in service of the king. And yet he's acting the role of a warrior. He also takes the position of an influential man. He parks himself in the public square. It says in chapter 15 that he sits at the gates. Why does, he, why does he want to be at the gates? Well, every person from the whole nation that comes into Jerusalem has to pass by him. And so anyone that comes with a complaint, he stands there and he says, tell me what, is your, what it is that's your problem. 
And he begins to, to sow seeds of doubt against David. And he begins to curry the favor of the people. And so in that moment, people would come in and he said, well, tell me your problem. And he says, oh, wouldn't it be great if there was someone here in Jerusalem that would listen to your problems? You know, if I were in a position, I'd take care of that problem for you. So he becomes kind of a fix-it man and he's, he's promising all these, promise, all these things to the people that are coming in. Now, he's never been asked to lead a group. He's never had to give counsel to tribes or kings or um, to settle legitimate cases in the world. We know that David was actually available for this because we saw it in the chapter before that someone came with a problem and got easy entrance to go present that to David and David would help rule about what happened. Absalom's inserting himself before they could ever get to David. He says, no, bring your problems to me, I'll handle it. And he's undercutting David. And through this, what we see is that, that Absalom's really a wannabe leader. He lacks the wisdom, maturity, perseverance, conviction to lead. He's never, he's never suffered the hardships, earning the right to get to do this, but he wants to have the position and he's going to take it. In fact, in 2 Samuel 15, 6, what we see is, it says, so Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Who did he steal the hearts from? Well, first of all, from his father, David. But secondly, from the Lord. Because David was the Lord's anointed. Remember when David was anointed king, he said, I will not raise my hand against Saul, the king's anointed. Absalom doesn't seem to have that same character. He has no problem raising his hand against the Lord, the Lord's anointed, David. And so it says that he stole their hearts. Here's the thing, Absalom's desire to lead isn't necessarily wrong. He had actually had royalty on both sides of his family. It was probably a natural thing for him to want to do it. But when his desire leads him to go against the desires of the Lord, then he stepped across the line into sinful, evil territory. And Absalom does. And so it says he stole their hearts. And when the time is right, he stages a coup in the capital. And that's where we'll pick up the story next week is we're gonna to begin to see what happens when Absalom seizes the kingdom. Now friends, here's what I wanna ask is, what do we do with all this? This is Shakespearean level tragedy, right? And this is heavy, heavy stuff. Here's what's sad to me. At each step of the way in the story, David could have intervened. David could have called time out. He could have stepped and inserted himself at any moment along the way. He could have inserted himself when Amnon was lusting after his sister and spiritually guided him and said, here's where you go with your lust. He could have inserted himself in this moment when Tamar, or when, when Tamar had, been, uh, had, been, uh, had been assaulted and he could have gone to her and provided compassion. He could have gone to her and reassured her, I will settle this and justice will be done. He could have intervened in Absalom's anger and said, Absalom, let me handle this. I will take care of it. It's right that something, that justice is executed. He could have gone to Absalom after he killed Amnon and said, enough, come home. Let's restore this thing and get something made right. When Absalom's brought home to Jerusalem, he said, he could have gone to him strategically and said, let me show you how to re-enter into a city after you've been away for three years in exile and held his hand and walked him into that moment. But he's absent spiritually, he's absent emotionally, he's absent strategically from the life in this situation. Here's what I want you to see about the consequences of sin. Remember the old cartoons with the snowballs that begin to roll downhill? 
They just begin to collect more snow and collect more and then they keep going, running over and all of a sudden people get brought into the snowballs and they keep going and houses get brought in snowballs and they become this giant thing. So what has to happen with the consequence of sin is someone has to say enough and stop the crazy cycle. And so friends, as we think about how to apply this today, can I just ask you a question? Are you taking sin seriously? And is there, is there sin in your life that needs someone to cry out enough? Are there consequences of sin that are rolling in just a cycle of sin and consequences that need someone to say, no more, let's stop. Friends, can I encourage you that you can acknowledge those to the Lord today? That you can bring your sin to him. We talk about God's grace because it's wonderful. But grace is never an excuse to sin all the more. Grace should lead us to repentance. Grace should lead us to come and confess. Here's the good news for us. Our heavenly father is a better father than David. When we're in pain, he does not ignore it. When we've been wronged, he has compassion for us. When we're stuck in the maze of sin and suffering, he doesn't leave us to our own devices, but he intervenes for us. He continually comes and initiates with us. He loves us so much that he will not allow us to hide from him forever. But he continues to call us and draw us out if we have ears to hear. And when we come home, he will not banish us to a house in exile away from his family but he welcomes us in. And Jesus taught us that our heavenly father is like a daddy when the prodigal returns home. And it says that while his son was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the father said, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is now found. And they began to celebrate. So friends, whatever sin trap you find yourself in, come home, run home. To your heavenly Father, we pray for us. Father, you are our Father, Abba, Daddy. You discipline us as your children. You care for us and correct us. You take us as we are, but you do not leave us as we are. Father, you do good work in our hearts to restore, to reframe and to redirect our lives. And Father, we ask that you would meet us here even now. Father, if there's any who are just reeling under the weight of their sin and they don't know a way out, Father, with the cry of their heart, just come to you right now and just say, enough, Lord, help. And Father, we ask that you would meet them where they are. Father, for their good and for your glory. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks again for joining us for this Redemption Sermon. For more resources and information about Redemption Church, visit redemptionokc.com and follow us on social media.